Can we talk? The podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive features stories about gender and Jewishness. Nahani Rouse, Jen Richler, and Judith Rosenbaum talk with guests about everything from Jewish women leading seances to fighting fat stigma. Can We Talk just kicked off its spring season talking to Jody Cantor, co-author of the book She Said about breaking the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse story. Coming up this season, three Jewish women sue their home state of Kentucky for its abortion ban. People sound off about the word shiksa and much more. You can find Can We Talk at jwa.org slash canwetalk or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 370, Spirituality. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are here in the wrap-up episode for our quite long series on spirituality. And I say that not because, oh, it was so long. It was so so much. Thank God it's over. Oh, thank God that we aren't sure that we believe in that it's over. But <laughs> actually, it was long in a good way. It really changed the way that I'm thinking. And I hope it, it changed and impacted the way that others were thinking out there in listener world. So I'm excited to jump into that conversation. Before we do that, we have some big news to announce. Actually, we already announced did. It came out on Monday. But what is the big news? The big news is that I have been offered a position as the president of Lippmann Camphor Foundation for Living Torah, and I've accepted that. Yay! (laughs) Thank you. And We're very excited and sad, but also mostly excited. We're mostly excited because most of the changes will be under the hood, as we said. I am still going to be on the podcast next week and every week. So podcast listeners should experience no change. The other things that I do that are kind of public facing, the Oral Talmud video show, which, by the way, we're very excited that we're finally going to start releasing as a podcast in late spring, teaching in the yeshiva and all of those good things I'm going to keep doing. It's just that somebody else or somebody's else will end up as the day-to-day leader of the organization, executive director, etc., And what I want to say is that Lippmann Camphor Foundation for Living Torah has been an important supporter of ours up till this point. If you have benefited from Jewish Live and from the Yeshiva, you have benefited directly from their support. Our missions are extremely aligned, and I'm really just so excited that I'm going to be able to help continue our work, the work that we've been doing here on Judaism Unbound, in trying to catalyze a movement to reimagine Judaism in a new way. So the foundation is really committed to Judaism Unbound staying stable and our work continuing. So I think it's all great, and I'm really looking forward to this new chapter in my own professional life, and I'm really looking forward to see what happens next to Judaism Unbound. Yeah, and we really are psyched for you, Dan. This is an incredible moment for you, and you're still going to receive all of my constant crutches about random news happening in Jewish life. All of that's going to stick around. But we also have this other new piece of what you will be bringing to the world, and we're just so energized that you are going to get to do that. Thanks so much. And I have to say that Lex and the rest of our team has been incredible stepping in to take over various things that I've been doing. So it's really, really great. You can also check out three episodes of Judaism Unbound from over the years where we had guests that were at that time or still working at the foundation. In episode 37, we had the founding president, John Wucher, and also Lee Moore, who was, I believe her title at the time was rabbi in residence or something along those lines, at the foundation. In episode 172, we had Ayalon Eliach, who is currently the chief ideas officer at Leibniz Kampfer Foundation for Living Torah. 
And in episode 252, we had my predecessor as president of the foundation, Aaron Dorfman, as our guest to talk really a lot about the foundation. And Aaron is now leading an important organization working to preserve democracy. So that's uh, that's a pretty important thing. So with that, I think let's move into the meat of our conversation of our work on spirituality, which I have actually been thinking a lot about. But Last time, Lex, we did a wrap-up episode. We kind of did a mid-series wrap-up episode, or I guess that's not a wrap-up, that's a wrap-in. And we started talking about this idea of spirituality having a lot to do with the dissolution of oneself. And that is something that really stuck with me. Actually, it was transformational for me, Lex, so I appreciate that a lot from you. And I've got at least a little bit of a conceptual framework that has been working for me, and I wanted to discuss it and to see where it goes. But here's how I'm thinking about it, that human beings have a yearning to be connected to something beyond themselves. And that sounds like such a simplistic thing to say, because of course, that means God. But I'm saying, no, I don't, I don't mean that to be God. I mean that simply to be another human being, perhaps, your partner, your friend, a community, a small group, perhaps something larger, an organization, a nation, the world, all of humanity. And it can go out and out further and further and further until maybe you eventually get to all of creation, the entire universe, the entire planet Earth, all the life that's on it. But you don't necessarily have to go out that far. And and I want to be able to talk even about that closest connection, which might be a friend or a partner. And to say the difference between having a friend or a partner where it's like there are two of us and we have a relationship. To say, no, when we are thinking about that in a spiritual way, there's a way in which that relationship actually becomes its own organism. And as that happens, our self is dissolved, as we talked about last time. But it's not dissolved and we diffuse into the universe. It's dissolved so that we can recognize that we are part of this single organism. And the other piece, though, is that what we might call religion and what I'm looking to call something else is a set of technologies that does two things. Number one, it helps us get ourselves into that state where we feel a dissolution of self and a connection between ourselves and something larger. Again, even if it's just one other person and we have a sense that we are part of a single organism with that other person or with the entire universe. And it is also a set of technologies that helps us come back to ourselves when we undissolve, right? Where we come back to our singular self and we then are going to live in the world in a different way because we have had that experience of recognizing that we are actually not a self. We are actually part of a larger organism. So that's where I'm at at this stage in the series. Where are you at, Lex? Similar place. And I really love the way you articulated it. I mean, I find myself having a funny thought, which is, why do we hug? Why do we actually do that action? It's a really interesting physical action that we do we broadly define. I don't want to claim that every single culture in the world does this. I don't know that. Um, it would surprise me to learn about a human society that doesn't hug in some ways. And by the way, like to not even just talk about hugging, like sexual acts of like intimacy where two bodies are deeply intertwined with one another. What's happening there is that 
for a brief moment with hugging, two people are one physically. There is, you are reducing to the maximum possible degree distance between you, theoretically a self, and a different person who is theoretically a self. And you are creating a unit of two people, if two people are hugging, that is beyond either of you independently. And that feels good to us. Like, it, it's nice. So there's a few things that are nice. One is like physical touch is nice, but also the sense that it's not just us is nice. I mean, you could think of a group hug where a whole bunch of people are coming together. They're like, I've never had a group hug that like totally works in a, in like, we're all just sort of all over the place. Your arms are just sort of around each other. And it's different from a hug with two people when you like can fully encircle one another with your arms. But in a group hug, everybody is like, oh, wow, we're like creating this big mush, this big unit that is made up of a bunch of people who theoretically on a day-to-day basis are separable from that unit. But right now we're all one thing. And I think we do it because, I mean, you framed it in a couple ways and I strongly side with, I think the second one you said, it's recognizing that which is already true. So you, you framed it in two ways. You talked about how on a certain level, I am like a self and like, there's this goal to tra- to transcend that self. That's one idea. The other is that we're actually in a true, deep, maybe metaphysical way, not actually separate. I could look at a pot full of dirt and I'm not thinking about each individual grain of dirt as separate. Like it's it's soil. It's like one thing. There's a whole host of examples of this. Anything that has multiple pieces, even our own bodies, ourselves, like th- they're made up of cells and none of us is walking around thinking about the billions and billions of individual selves we're, of individual oh that was a funny slip of cells not selves we're thinking about like theoretically us as a self and that's an illusion so for me what's happening when we hug is not that we are like creating a new unit that is two people beyond one it's that we are recognizing something that was already true that person that i'm hugging and i are not actually separate we are two grains of dirt. I don't mean dirt disparagingly. We're, we're two pieces of soil that have been, you know, in the same big old pot where a plant is growing, the plant being like all of human existence. And for a brief moment, we are sort of actualizing or recognizing the ways in which we are not separate by reducing the literal physical distance between us. That's what's happening. It's a recognition of what is already true that makes that powerful. I see religion as a set of tools or at least good religion or admirable religion, the, the set of religious things I want to do as tools that help us be reminded that that's already the case. Because if I were to frame it otherwise, that it's like a set of tools that help us reach towards connection with others, like, yes, but I'm it, it, connection is a funny word to use when you think you're already connected. I, th- I think that it's just about noticing what's already true, if that makes sense. A lot of metaphors there to unpack and, and separate out. I mean, the first metaphor that you spoke about, hugging, that really, that that felt completely good to me. I mean, not just the hug. I get the hug too. You know, I just wanted a hug right there. But the idea that hugging is a kind of physical, tangible manifestation of what we're talking about, that's a powerful idea that I'm going to hold. Um, 
that you're going to hold. Nice. <laughs> you're going to hug it. Yes. I'm going to hug it close to me. One of the questions, though, that I'm, I'm struggling with, it, the question of whether it's what you're saying that we're just affirming something that's already true or we're seeking to make something true that's not yet true or not quite true or something in between. The something in between being the metaphor that I'm thinking about is the salmon or whatever that swims upstream to its spawning grounds that when it's not in its spawning grounds, it's not It's not in its spawning grounds. It has a yearning to go to its spawning grounds, right? It has this instinctual desire to go back to a maybe deeper truth. So there's part of me that says, yes, I believe that fundamentally we are all made up of the stuff of the stars and therefore we are not actually distinct from one another. However, I also think that it's true that in ways that are meaningful, we are, I am a, a distinct uh, entity and a distinct organism and a distinct personality. And to say that I'm simply the same exact thing as, for example, a rock is true in a certain metaphysical way and maybe even in a physical way, but it's also not true. And the extent to which I have a yearning to connect and feel part of that oneness with the rock or another person or a tree, that is also, I want to affirm that as as a yearning to make something true that is sort of already true, but not necessarily quite that it's uh, already true. And there is part of me that also is attracted to the idea that in the reality of our lives, we actually just don't feel that connected a lot of the time to other people and to communities of people. And to sort of be honest about that and say, and we have to work hard. We want to work hard. Yeah. And we yeah. have to work hard in order to try to make that true is part of the work here. I really am on board with that. You know, recognition of this thing that I do believe is sort of already true is hard work. I accept to some extent the point you're making that even if it is already true that we're all one, we operate in our lives with a sense that we aren't. And also a real way in which, you know, even if we're all pieces of soil in a big pot, like I said, like each piece of soil can have character, right? You know, there's the whole thing. Every snowflake is a different shape. <laughs> um, I'm not here to do the oh, millennials or snowflakes. That I'm not here for that. But I don't think it needs to be the case that if we are all stardust or if we are all part of a broader whole, that that reduces any sense that we have differences among us. We We mm -hmm. clearly do. It's just that what those differences mean is not that like I, a separable thing in the universe, am X. It's that, oh, the jumbled set of things that constitutes Lex Rofberg at a given moment happens to have a certain set of tendencies that turn into personality traits and love of X, Y, or Z, certain affiliation, certain whatever. That certainly can be true. But I want to sort of sit with some of our recent episodes too. I, I want to make sure that we honor them and dwell in them because there's been some incredible conversations lately. And the one that I'm being called to first is let my people sing. Because I did my hugging situation before, but I, I, I think that the reason I did that is because they already did a version of that by talking about what is literally happening in a room when a bunch of selves, quote unquote, are unifying together in song, in vocalization that is melodic. I think it's deeply powerful. What you're doing is a version of the hugging. Where the hug is is physical bodies 
unifying in one big mush. I, I don't have a better word for what it is, like a pack. The song is unifying vocal cords, you know, voices, which is another part of us. We we think of it as separate from us because we make sound and then the sound is like out in the air. It's It's separate from us. But allowing our voices to vibrate with each other. And our voices, of course, are also our bodies. They are vibrating. And it's another form of a hug, basically. Mm-hmm. And I've been in some situations, they talked beautifully about harmonies. I love harmonies. I've been in some situations where the leader is adamant that, please, please don't harmonize just yet. We're going to sing all the melody for the first few times, because the whole point is that hug thing. It's that unifying in one pitch. I mean, obviously, you know, some people are, there's going to be a little bit of fly, a little bit of sharp. That's part of the beauty. But like, roughly, it's a unification act. And once again, I think that's why I don't want to be too universal and say everybody does this in all the same ways. But it's why across human civilization, singable music by groups of people is a really central mechanism. When we think about this series, and I'm going back to this hug, right? I mean, the technology, well, I guess a hug is both a technology for connection and also kind of a metaphor that helps us see, well, what would it feel like if we really were connected in the way that we're talking about? And same maybe with singing. It's both a technology for achieving it. And when we, like you say, when we think about what a song really sounds like when everybody's singing together, oh, that's kind of what we're trying to do metaphorically in terms of our resonance with others and with the universe. Like, are there other By the way, I just want to flag, I don't think it's metaphor, personally. I'm not saying you are not allowed to think that, Mm -hmm. but I'm not saying that X is comparable to Y. I'm saying X is Y. Like, singing is that unification act, that hugging is that unification act. Okay, so I I would just add, so now we have, there's three, right? Because one is that it's a tool to achieve it, Two is that it's the thing itself, and three is that it's a metaphor for the thing, right? And I think it's all of those. I'm not I'm not suggesting that it's one or the other, but I'm saying it could be all three. And I'm wondering, I guess, whether in addition to song and hugging, we can imagine what are other technologies or other metaphors or other the thing, and maybe some of them are only one of the three, or maybe all of them are all of the three. And I'm wondering, like... Again, what would our lives look like if we were maximizing our capacity to plug into these various technologies, these various experiences that would, that it's what it would look like if we were really living a, quote, spiritual life. Later, I want to get into the language a little bit more. Well, it's funny. You made a joke in our Let My People Sing episode that I loved, which is, oh, next week we're going to have to interview Let My People Dance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's appropriate. I think dancing, dancing is really interesting here. First off, I don't think anybody would deny, including me, that dancing is part of this category, spirituality, that we're experiencing in this unit. I am not very good at dancing. And I know, I know, I know there's people listening who will probably say, no, 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 everybody's good at dancing. I I experienced that similar to how other people experience. Like, no, everybody can sing. I, I struggle to dance effectively. But dancing is interesting because... Most of the time, I mean, there are forms of dance where everybody is doing the same steps. That That's kind of similar to what I'm describing with like singing in unison or the hugging piece. There's other forms of dance where you're all dancing to the same rhythm. It's the same beat, but sort of the whole point is that you're dancing differently. Or I mean, it's not that you're dancing differently just for the sake of it, but like most people are doing slightly different things to the same beat. And I think that actually points to what you were saying, Dan, about how 
we don't want to pretend that this is all about all of us being the same. And what it is to be spiritual is to just recognize there's no difference in the world. I mean, that's the classic take of folks who are like, oh, the colorblindness. Uh, we just have to not notice anybody's differences. We're all part of one thing. We should speak Esperanto because there should only be one human language. We should all have one, like sort of the John Lennon imagine notion of spirituality. That's that's not, I mean, there are elements of that that I do like and that I've even said in this episode about oneness and the world will live as one. But there's others that are not right. And I think dancing is a great, whether it's metaphor or embodied reality, of sharing an embodied connection while still having room on an individualized level to play and be different. That honors, I think, both pieces that you were bringing up around how, yes, we do want to unify with a broader whole, but we also want to maintain individuality. So I'd say dance. And the other piece, I mean, I've hinted at it a few times in this unit, but I mentioned justice a lot. I mentioned like, there's a reason that people gather together in rallies. I mean, whether it's protest or even if it's not protest against a thing, but just sort of a public statement of values to unify with a broad group of people who stand for a particular shared sense of what the world should be. I believe that is a spiritual act in no less of a way than singing or dancing. Like spirituality usually is heard by people as like, oh, there's usually like some chant or music. If you're part of a large group of people that are calling for a particular political goal, that's also a way of dissolution of self where you are part of a big group and you're and it's not you being there as you it's you being there as part of a grander scale humanity it's funny because like we're now you know we're we're having some uh, cross references between podcasts because recently on the adapting podcast which is david reifman's podcast from the jewish education project he was interviewing Charlie Schwartz, who, with Josh Four, is one of the co-creators of this new thing called Lair House, which is a uh, tavern and Jewish learning space in the Boston area. If I if I remember correctly, David was asking Charlie, like, based on our podcast, he was saying, you know, Judaism Unbound is talking about spirituality these days. Do you think of food as something that leads to spirituality or something along those lines? And Charlie said that he didn't. It, it, for him, it wasn't, you know, learning was uh, something that led to spirituality or prayer led to spirituality or, but not food. And it was interesting because I was thinking about, well, I could imagine that food could be for a lot of people. And in terms of our recent conversations, like the Tzitzit project, I can easily imagine how somebody could put on, you know, a garment with fringes and feel that that's somehow a talisman whether because it connects us to Jews throughout the ages or because it connects us, you know, because in their mind, there's a way that that wearing that object helps us, again, dissolve self and connect to the larger uh, humanity or the world or the God or whatever. For some people, that would work. For me, I don't think it would work. And uh, same with meditation, right? Like I think meditation works for more people. Maybe meditation would work for everybody. The people who practice meditation seem to think that it would work for everybody. And I wonder. So part of what I am interested in thinking about also is the language that we use for some of these experiences. Because my experiences, 
And I am like conscious of myself drifting into a place where I could imagine that I would start to be like one of these people, which I will describe as the people who all of a sudden they were an atheist and all of a sudden they have a concept of God that works for them. And now they're talking about God all the time and telling everybody that you should also believe in God. You know, the God that you don't believe in is also the God that I don't believe in, but I now have a relationship with God. And I am thrilled for that person. That is, that is awesome. But often I feel like the people who start to talk that way end up distancing themselves, ironically, because we're talking about spirituality being something that, that makes the interconnectedness between people, but they end up kind of distancing themselves from the people who they used to be like, because now mm -hmm. all of a sudden they are using this language comfortably that the other people still haven't come to a comfortable relationship with. And the tendency often seems to be that the onus is now on the people who used to be, you know, who I used to be like, for them to come around and understand the right way to think about God. And then they too can start mm -hmm. to have a relationship with God and think about God. And I want to kind of do the opposite. From this series, I'm starting to have a sense of spirituality as something that I have. And I, for myself, have found a meaning for the word religion that these are the technologies that we use to achieve a sense of interconnectedness and spirituality and the technologies that we use to take that sense of connectedness and bring it back to the world, practically speaking. So once I see myself as the same organism with people that are marginalized or people that are poor, whatever it might be, I then come back to myself and I now have sacred obligations to care for those folks because essentially I'm caring for myself because we're the same organism, right? That works for me, but I would like never other than in a long-form conversation that we're having now where people can listen to it and understand what I'm talking about, I would never go out into a conversation with somebody that I just met and said, oh, we should be spiritual and religious together. I would feel that it's my job to find new language to capture these ideas that actually can be taken in by people who are sort of allergic to that language. I love this a lot. And I think that you're diagnosing a really prevalent, I don't want to call it problem, but a, a really common tendency among people who have found their way into connection, whether it's with Judaism, whether it's with God independent of Judaism, whether it's with spirituality, whether it's with meditation, there there is this almost on-off switch sometimes where once you've found that, you are so excited about what you've found, about what you've connected to, that you just want to evangelize it to others and tell them that they're on the same page already. I mean, it's it's amazing how many times in different circles I've talked about my relationship to Judaism or to spirituality. And whoever I'm talking to, they say like, oh, well, you're basically, insert, like, like you're oh, you're basically a secular humanist Jew. Oh, you're basically a renewal Jew. Oh, you're basically... Uh, this uh, oh your your theology you you're basically a Buddhist you're basically like the, I don't think it's a stretch to take m many things that I have said on this podcast and that I believe and that are important parts of my life and map them onto any of those or to map my beliefs onto God belief. But what's so funny is when people ask me and this does happen because I'm a rabbi like do I believe in God? I'm doing like translation work in my head in real time. I am trying to understand what the other person means by God. And then based on that, say if I believe in it or not. 
I'm I'm not somebody who has a general term like oh the god you don't believe in I also don't believe in. Sometimes I'm talking to somebody and they don't believe in the oneness of all existence and the god they don't believe in is in fact the god that I believe or the I mean I don't even know like whether I'd call the oneness of all things God, I, a lot of people do that. And I think they're doing it because there's pressure to believe in God. And so calling the thing they believe in, ah, that's God. Anyway, I, I think you're lifting up a really important piece. The other piece that you lifted up or that maybe you just used the word organism. And so I'm noticing something. I'm always fascinated with people who say that they are not interested in organized religion. We mm-hmm. never talk about how the words organize and organism are deeply intertwined. I think for a lot of people, organized religion is code for oppressive structures that endorse conservative reactionary behaviors in the world and restrict rights and are part of all the things that somebody who's, who strives for justice would want. I much prefer organized religion, by my definition, to disorganized religion. I'm not somebody who, like you talked about meditation and so like I've tried in a lot of different forms, individual sits, meditations, you know, silent meditations, walking meditations, other forms of meditation. I have not landed on one. It's not to say I never will. I have not landed on one that really sits for me because it doesn't feel organized. And when I, what I mean by organized, I don't need it to be structured. I, I just mean I want organized. I mean, in, in the political sense, I, I want communities that are organized where we are constantly abetting, abutting, adjacent to others. And we are navigating our way through our own collective whole all the time. I am not called to individualized things where I just sort of do my thing. I I can read a book and find it meaningful. I am less likely to call that spirituality than I, unless I'm doing it with a group of people or specifically doing so to connect to a broader group of people. It's interesting because I can imagine doing some of that more solitary spirituality. And in those cases, I'm not seeking to connect to a group of people, a defined group of people. It's more like in those kind of actions, I might be more trying to connect to this larger sense of the universe or all of creation. But actually, like an an example of that feels to me like psychedelics. Just a thought about like different connecting in in different ways. Uh, One thing that I wanted to just note about the language is that there's a couple of lines from the book of Exodus that for me are really significant in thinking about this. And I don't know that I'm yet articulating it well enough, so I apologize if I'm not. But it comes from Exodus chapter 6, starting with verse 2. And it's when God is speaking to Moses, uh, sort of right before Moses is about to start going on his mission to let the people go. And it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh right, which is this name for God, which I'm interpreting here as the more abstract idea of God, the the less tangible understanding of God, a God that is kind of, right, the, the God that we classically think of as the Jewish God who's everywhere and all of that, not a physical body. And so it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, which is another name for God. But we sort of think of El Shaddai, it means probably God of the mountains, as a very, a much more 
uh, distinct God, maybe with a body, maybe with a real kind of, you can see him, you can talk to him. And it says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yahweh. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So the way that I'm trying to interpret that is that this new name, it's sort of the same God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew, but I think that Yahweh is saying, no, I'm actually bigger than that. I'm different from that. El Shaddai is a manifestation of me, an avatar of me, but I am not El Shaddai. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they only knew that part of me. They only knew El Shaddai. And actually, I made a, I made a covenant with them as El Shaddai, right? So it's not just that they knew me that way, but we had a real relationship that way. And now I'm telling you, I wasn't El Shaddai. I was this bigger concept, this more diffuse, abstract idea of Yahweh. But all the stories about El Shaddai that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob told, you can keep telling those stories, but you should know that they're not exactly true. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw me that way, but it's not quite right. And so when I read that story from Exodus, I'm thinking about what's the next turning of that story. And to me, it is one where we recognize something like the oneness of everything. And we understand that that oneness of everything was revealed to our ancestors as Yahweh. And that Yahweh was revealed to our ancestors, previous ancestors, as El Shaddai. And that actually this notion of the oneness of everything is a higher order truth but we still can tell all the old stories about Yahweh and about God and about El Shaddai. We should just recognize them as the old stories. Now that we have a sense that we can relate to some idea of God or spirituality in our own way, it's actually not the Jewish tradition to go running around telling everybody that they should uh, also want to use this word. It's actually just as much the Jewish tradition to say, let me define a new word, a new concept, and say that is going to be our new understanding. So in a way, I'm asserting that the most Jewish thing of all might be to stop talking about God, not because we don't believe in God and we minimize that, but actually because the truth is something larger than that. I think that's a persuasive take. There are some people who know that and still want to fight for God because they want people to be on some level obedient to God, or even if not obedient, to have deep relationship to God, to question God. I I don't know. I, I'm not somebody who thinks that Judaism now or even Judaism in the past, to the like I'm not somebody who thinks that what we are is a set of people who think about God or even to quote, you know, Yisrael, who who wrestle with God, even saying, as lots of progressive Jews do, no, 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 it's not about obeying God. It's about wrestling with God, questioning God. You're still seeding, like C-E-D-I-N-G, you're still seeding the point that Judaism boils down to verbing God in some way. I don't know. My experiences with most Jews is that they're doing a lot of other things, and they can still be spirituality. Jews are doing all sorts of other stuff that they often that they often find resonant, that ties to the past and future, that ties to our inner yearnings, that ties to our familial and societal yearnings, and they're not feeling like they're allowed to call it spirituality. And so I'm torn because I don't want to just say whatever you're already doing, that's spirituality. 
Because all that is, is saying, I want there to be a higher amount of spirituality in the world such that I'm just going to count everything. That's not helpful. Even as I think that it's true in potential that any human action can be spiritual. I've talked about that. If, if If it is leveraged for the purpose of dissolving oneself, of connecting beyond oneself. But what I want to name, I mean, Ariel Mays last week talked about how a real gift of Jewish mysticism historically, but even of Jewish tradition beyond that, other other mainstream sources, Talmud, whatever, even Torah, it's to find stuff that the rest of the world says that doesn't matter so much and say, no, it really does matter. And it's really where, you know, spirituality or holiness or whatever live. We've got millennia of arguments where, whether it's Christians or others, often Christians, are saying like, ugh, there's these people who are obsessed with like what food goes into your mouth. Going back to what you said before about food as spirituality. There's these people that think it's about all these nitty gritty specific doctrines about what you do when you wake up in the morning, what you do, the next steps of your day. Like there, there's rules for everything. No, no, no. Simpler. It, it's about grand abstract truths. It's about a few core tenets. It's about, for, for Christians, it's about, you know, a particular person who is the son of God. I'm really deeply invested in, no, the, like, the nitty-gritty stuff is deeply important. My issue with Orthodox Judaism, my issue with people who observe Jewish law in a more stringent way than I do, I mean, I don't see myself as observing it as all, at all, actually, at least not systematically, but my issue with them is not that they're like obsessing over stuff that doesn't matter. It's that they're coming to the wrong conclusions. I want to obsess just as much. And, and I think that's sometimes confusing to people because there are other people who are non-Orthodox Jews, progressive Jews, whatever, who... They do actually want it to be a less obsessive. I don't. I don't have the right non-weighted adjectives for that. They, they want it not to be, you know, quote unquote, legalistic, quote unquote, you know, nitty gritty, down and dirty, into all these little things. I do want that. That's not really my core issue. My core issue is that they're they're wrong. We should have different rules that are more mm-hmm. liberating mm-hmm. to society. And so I actually want to dwell in the Hasidic idea that absolutely everything is potential Torah. That ain't owed milvado, there's nothing other than God. Every single item surrounding us in our dwelling places, every single piece of trash on the street, every single thing that we dismiss as not worth our time, as, oh, that's a part of the world that we can look the other way at in favor of the quote-unquote important stuff. I want that to go away. I want that idea to be gone. I think it harms everyone because what we end up doing is dismissing actual people and dismissing actual realms of society and making huge distinctions between who has rights and who doesn't, who has the most money and who doesn't, who has the most power and who doesn't. So I want to elevate all of those realms that have been dismissed. I happen to think that religion or spirituality is a really useful, or at least in Jewish forms, where we are actually obsessed with what should I do when I wake up in the morning, with how should I eat and what should I say before and after I do it, with all of the stuff that people want to say, oh, that's just like you're fueling your body so you can do your life. That's what eating is. Not about it. 
But I do really find strength and hope in these ideas that we would specifically focus on the mundane, the stuff of our lives, and channel it into holiness. I guess it connects just to the last thing that I want to reflect on, which is our encounter over the last few weeks with Hasidic ideas and neo-Hasidic ideas. It's gotten me thinking about a kind of counterfactual. Like, if we look at the tree of Jewish history over the last 500 or so years, I feel like the mystical or spiritual movements of Judaism kind of branched before the progressive denominations branched from the tree. In other words, when we think about Hasidism, it kind of branched away from mainstream Judaism of its time before the reform movement started. And so the reform movement, the conservative movement, kind of came off the misnagdish side of the tree, which means the people that were against Hasidism. And so they became, they were more intellectual. They were, they were less spiritually focused because they were coming from a different branch of the tree. I have come to understand that whereas I might have previously looked at Hasidism and said, well, that's a form of orthodoxy, so it's not really my kind of Judaism, that there's actually a lot in there that is my kind of Judaism. And I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to bring it back to my progressive form of Judaism. And I know that's what the people who are doing neo-Hasidism think that they're doing and, and are doing to a certain extent. But there's a way in which they are trying to take a version of Hasidism and make it more progressive. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take progressive Judaism and bring over the technologies of mysticism and Hasidism and spirituality, not back into, just into progressive Judaism for the first time. And I don't exactly know what that looks like. I don't really think that that project has been carried out in earnest. And maybe it's not bringing those technologies into like Reform Judaism. It's really saying we want to create a hybridized new version of progressive Judaism that takes certain pieces. I guess it really is like hybridization of a plant, right? You take some of the qualities of Reform Judaism and, you know, and its its descendants, right? Conservative, Reconstructionist, Reno, et cetera, right? And you take some of the attributes of Hasidism and you graft them together and create a new version of Judaism that would be progressive and spiritual. I am very interested in that project, but I feel like those who are engaged in the neo-Hasidic project, as I understand it, are still committed to a variety of religious technologies, such as things like keeping kosher or prayer services and talking about God. You know, these are things that I personally, I'm looking for a version of Judaism that, that isn't focused on those things. And I don't have that. I, I, I'm looking for it or, and, and maybe want to be part of creating it. But, but that's where I'm, I'm very inspired by all the things that we learned about Hasidism. And I'm trying to figure out how I can bring those things not only into my personal life, because by the way, a lot of people say, oh, well, you could just do those things. And I'm like, but this goes back to our idea about the dissolution of self. I don't want to just do these things. I want to do these things with a community. So that's kind of where I'm left with on the Hasidism train. I think it's because we were talking about soil before, but like we clearly both were in tree land and Ariel Mays spoke specifically about the tree of Hasidism and that that today's neo 
Hasidic folks, you know, people doing a new Hasidism to use the title of the two volume series that Ariel Mays co-wrote. The, the two titles of the books were New Hasidism Roots and New Hasidism Branches. It was a tree metaphor. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of, I wish we had the leech tag commons people here again. Um, because they, they could talk about the agricultural pieces of this. Like, what mm-hmm. do we mean? Do, do we want to plant a new tree or plant that's like sharing soil? With the Hasidic tree, such that it it shares some common characteristics. I mean, I don't know enough about soil and how it works to actually say this, but like, what's the metaphor? And this is a metaphor, but like, what's the vision of an agricultural thing, a tree, a plant, or whatever that is not a branch from the previously existing Hasidic tree, but sort of intertwines with that Hasidic tree? You know, if somebody listening to this is like a botanist or or knows deep stuff about plants, or even if you've studied like Kilaim, the part of the Talmud that looks at um, which plants you are allowed to plant close together and which you are, I don't know. That's something I'm curious about. But I am inspired by what you said, because I think the most common strategy is to start from an existing tree, whether it's Hasidism, you mentioned Misnag, like the, the opponents of Hasidism and a branch of that might be the reform movement, another branch, whatever. Um, to start from an existing tree and branch off from the trunk. That's what I think a lot of Jewish innovations, creativities, that's what they are trying to do. I am excited by the notion of like, planting a new tree but it's not a it's not an entirely new tree it's nourished by the same soil it 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 has some of the ingredients of the previous trees truly truly i'm out of my element with this analogy but like something that contains those pieces but is not a branch from those pieces and that does sound kind of schismatic but that's okay i think i don't know anyway I, i'm excited to keep rolling with these conversations the spirituality unit has been a transformational one for us um, we'll always remember it as an important time because it is the last series before Dan officially starts this new chapter that is not a fully separate tree. He is still branched to the Judaism Unbound tree, but there's also some newness coming to be with his position at Lippin Camp for Foundation for Living Torah. But we will always remember this as a key turning point in that respect as well. So we're going to close out this conversation in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there's a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. All of those social media handles are at Judaism Unbound. You can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, where you'll find show notes for this episode and all sorts of good details about other elements of our work, including the Yeshiva, our digital center for Jewish learning and unlearning. And of course, you can email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we always like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.